Lessdoing.com. I think that it's time for your inner entrepreneur to come out and shine. Working with no limits. You know you're unstoppable. Flexibility and freedom. Showing you that anything's possible. Plan, execute, and get it done. No stress. We have overwhelmology 101. Lessdoing.com. My go getters make some noise. It's time to optimize, automate, and outsource. Woo! Welcome back to the Less Doing Podcast, episode 413. I am your host, Ari Mizell. And today we have a special segment. I had Jordan Harbinger recently as a guest for the Less Doing Leaders, which is my mastermind coaching program that I run. And every month I do a group call with them. And every now and then I have a great guest on. And this time I had Jordan to talk about the art of the interview and podcasting. So enjoy this segment with Jordan. Well, so let's jump in. So welcome, Jordan Harbinger, to the Less Doing Leaders monthly call. Thank you for hey. taking the time. Yeah, my pleasure. And actually, so the conversation we we're just having brings up my first question, which is, because um, part, part of what I want to talk about is how you're such a masterful interviewer. Mm. Um, how much talking do you do with your guests before you actually start recording? Uh, almost zero, really. Uh, I, pretty much zero. But I recommend that people do more of it because it helps. The more rapport you have, the better the conversation is. I mean, you can totally tell the difference between me talking with somebody who I've known for even like a day versus somebody who I'm like, hey, thanks for coming to a studio in Rock, Rockwall, Maryland uh, that I've never been to. I read your book yesterday and it was good. And they're like, cool, how does this thing work? Can you hear me? Tap, tap, tap. You know, like those. Those are those that you can make those good over the course of the interview, but it's better if you know the person before. And, and if you listen or watch really long YouTube interviews, you can clearly see the interviewer and interviewee getting more rapport as the time goes on. So if you're like a Joe Rogan fan and you watch Joe Rogan and it's like hour two and a half, they're finally starting to really like jam. And some of that's the conspicuous consumption of marijuana yeah, but, the weed kicks in. yeah I, and, and a lot of that it really is that honestly but i think there's also part of it that it's like they're finally starting to get a little bit more comfortable with him you know um and he also starts to understand what they're saying because as i as i understand it he doesn't do any prep which i mean a lot of people like that i think it really shows and i think he could do a one hour show that would be just as good if he did prep but don't mess with that recipe well, so how much prep do you do then? How much research are you doing on, on guests before you have them on? Uh, I do about 10 to 20 hours of research before I have the guests on. I thought you were going to say minutes. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, yeah, I do. I, I will read, let's say they have two books. Uh, I'll read both of them. And then I will read their Wikipedia, of course. I'll read their Wikipedia talk page. I'll go over their website. I'll listen to a few hours of interviews from other interviewers that I think are good. And then I will take a bunch of notes and then like the next day or the day after or a week later or whatever, I will go over my own notes after I've forgotten a lot of what I've read or, or looked at. And then I will ask questions based on those notes because sometimes I'll be like, oh, that's weird. It says from Iran, how did he get to the United States though? I wouldn't like cover that. So I'll write that down as a question. And then I will um, make sure that 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 gets answered because the problem the, the the great thing about no prep is you come in and you're like so where are you from oh you're iranian oh that's interesting how did 
how'd you end up in the United States? Like it happens in real time, but I try not to waste the audience's time with something that they might already know. And I try not to waste the audience's time with something that I could have found out on my own. So, because it's not a good use of their time. That's, that's why there are a lot of shows that are like three hours that literally could be like an hour. And you, you can also get 18 minutes or half an hour of usable practical stuff that the listener will actually remember in three hours, or you can get 40 minutes of that in 48 minutes. And it's like, my audience is busy. They don't have four hours, three hours, two hours to listen to stuff, or, or, or at least maybe they do, but they want, they want density, man. You know, these are, my audience is generally, the Jordan Harbinger show audience is generally like professionals that are educated according to our survey data. Not everybody, of course, but if you're a molecular biologist or if you're a freaking molecular biology student, do you want to spend three hours learning something that you could learn in 20 minutes? Probably not. You might spend 40 minutes with me because we're at the gym together, quote unquote, I'm in your ears, you're at the gym, uh, which is how I like it, by the way. Um, then you will do that. But you're, you don't want to spend three hours being like, get to the point. Did you even Google this guy? Like, what is your problem, Jordan? So I try to avoid that. I, I Again, I'm not talking about Joe Rogan specifically here. I, I, I like what he does, but um, generally. But I think there's a lot of interviewers, in, in journalists especially, they just freaking meander. And I'm like, you're doing this not because you're curious and you like to be surprised. You're doing this because you're lazy and you read a one sheet from an intern on the car ride to the studio. It's not, don't try and front like this is the natural way humans devour conversation. Like that's just not true for professionals. We like to read digested material. When I, when I, was, when I was in law school, um, I would read a legal case written in a textbook. I'm not reading a transcript of all the depositions. I don't want to read a transcript of all the Q&A, the cross-examination. I don't need that. I want to hear what the damn judge said at the end, you know? So that's what I try to do in my interviews, not necessarily taking a page from, from legal case books. Those are not exactly thrilling podcast material. But I, I think that do you want to watch the artist paint the whole painting or do you want to just look at the painting? You know, and, and there are some people that want one or the other, but let's, the vast majority of people don't go to a gallery and they're like, man, I want to see him frame this canvas. Too bad we only have the end result. Yeah, right. Absolutely. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a good um, good image, actually. Well, so then to that end, is there any sort of theme to the questions that you do ask in general? Because you are, again, I mean, now that I know how much research you do, it makes a lot of sense how you're so good at interviewing, but still, is there sort of a thematic element to what you're looking to get? Yeah, so I'll look, let me just crack open some notes here, why not? Um, because if we're doing that, I might as well look at the notes that I've actually used for something. So <clears throat> let me find something I haven't scribbled on with a pen, um, like an Apple pen. So I do, I do come up with themed questions and it's not like I'm good at, well, actually you have to be careful with that too, right? You don't, what you don't want to do is go, I'm going to ask this guy about the Hong Kong protests. And then he starts talking about, I, I interviewed an independent journalist about what's going on in Hong Kong. And he's like, gotten kicked out of Hong Kong, gotten kicked out of Iraq and Afghanistan. Cause he doesn't, he just like does whatever he wants, which is kind of cool um, from a, perspective of someone who consumes his stuff. His name's Michael Yawn. It's one of my latest episodes on the Jordan Harbinger show. But I, I, I took the notes that I wanted to ask him and I wrote everything down like I usually do in a Google Doc and I wrote down the thematic questions that I usually want. And 
but you don't want to say like, I want to hear about the Hong Kong protests. And then suddenly he starts talking about coronavirus, which is very sort of like up to the minute news. And I'm not going to be like, ah, let me just get through this or change the subject back. So you have to be able to kind of go where where the guest wants to go. It's probably a little bit like, I know nothing about horseback riding, but it's probably a little bit like horseback riding where if you're just outside, let's say you're just like out in the mountain, you know, the plains of California and you're on a horse. If the horse wants to go right and it looks like, oh, wants to go down to the beach and you kind of wanted to go left towards the mountains, if you're just out chilling, you probably aren't gonna wrangle that horse too hard to go where you want. You're probably just gonna let him sort of roam around, control him, make sure he doesn't throw you off, make sure he doesn't do anything dangerous, but you don't necessarily care where you go. It's kind of, or like if you walk outside, if you can go left on its a side street and you go right to the side street, it doesn't really matter. You're probably just going where there's nobody using a freaking leaf blower, right? So like, at least that's how I manage my, my path. So that's what I do with my guests. I don't want them to just sort of start wandering around into people's backyards, but I want them to follow a path, but it's one of many paths and it's okay. And I have to be educated enough on current subjects that I think they might address. And if, I'm, if they bring up something totally random, but it's still interesting, then I can ask more questions and, and my prep essentially becomes useless at that point, but you have to be ready to deal with that. And part of that is, am I generally educated in the area that they're talking about? You know, if, if, if I've read 10 hours about Hong Kong and the Hong Kong protests and he starts talking about coronavirus, I might not know much about it, but I know enough when it comes to interviewing and to infectious disease experts I've had on the show in the past and Asia and all the stuff I did about Hong Kong that I can follow along. So yes, have a theme, but you shouldn't be married to the theme of the interview because you might end up with somebody who's extremely well-versed in a topic that has just sort of come out of a meeting with like the latest info on coronavirus from, you know, some disease specialist. And then you're going to sort of like wrangle them back into what you want to talk about. You're going to kind of screw it up because you're missing an opportunity. And I see that a lot with, with well, frankly, every interviewer, but journalists do this especially because they're often looking for these like stupid sound bites that they can play. And it's not necessarily their fault. The network's probably making them do it, but they'll, you'll see just ridiculous tangents. And, and I also see, I see it when people are underprepared as well. Uh, a long time, years ago, I, I interviewed a doctor that was like focused on infectious diseases. This is before any sort of news about the virus. This is years ago. And she was Africa, an African-American woman. And I'd read in her book that in the dedication, which you also should read the dedication and the appendix and all that stuff. I read that she, she had thanked her parents and said, thank you to my parents for adopting me from uh, Africa, basically. And, you know, without you, I never would have had the purpose that I have now. And I thought, oh, that's kind of interesting. I guess she's adopted. And then it occurred to me when I Googled the rest of her story, her parents were actually white and she was black. So I was like, oh, okay. She was adopted by a white family in Canada or something. And so it turned out that her entire reason for doing all the work that she's doing in the whole, in her whole career, which is very illustrious, is because she was adopted from a poor country in Africa to a white family in the United States. So that informed her entire why. Like the reason she studied infectious diseases was to try to make the world a better place for all the children that like didn't make it out of, I forget where she was, Sierra Leone or something like that, or West Africa, Cote d'Ivoire. And I thought, that's interesting. And every other interview that she'd had that I'd heard from even like expert level journalists, they had totally missed that because they didn't know this about her. 
So they were like, oh, nobody asked her why she did what she did. They just asked her virus questions. And I thought this is far more interesting because this is somebody who like won the adoption lottery and is now has now made it her life's mission to sort of help the people in the country where she was from. Far more interesting than like, so tell us how malaria works, which you can Google, by the way, <laughs> obviously, you know, so that kind of thing, I feel like sticks with a with the general theme but makes the interview far more personable and far more interesting and far more relatable to somebody who's sitting at home in New Hampshire than just talking about the science behind the disease. But you still also have to be able to hold your own with that because if you don't, then you end up with all these health and wellness shows that we have where they just make stuff up and then the, the, the host can't call BS because they have no idea what that person is talking about because they didn't do any prep. That's a long answer, but does that make sense at all? Totally. Yeah, that completely makes sense. Uh, so Nico has a question. <laughs> we, uh, Jordan, um, which questions uh, get good actionable answers from most of your guests? Yeah, so what questions get good actionable answers from most of the guests? I When I do my show notes, I have different colors that I use when I'm, you know, I said I do the prep, I type everything out. Then when I go over those notes, I will actually highlight things in different colors. So if it's super important, super interesting, I'll highlight it in like green. Um, if it's a practical piece of advice, I highlight it in this weird pink color. And if it's really boring or I think it's fluffy, I'll highlight it in gray, which means I'll skip over it. If it's a story that illustrates a point, I highlight it in blue. And if it's going to be something that I should just cover myself in the clothes or the introduction to the show and I don't have to ask them. Like, you don't want to say, so where did you go to school? I can just say they went to Harvard Medical School, done. I don't need a 10 minute, you know, well, I started off and I don't need that to waste of your time as a listener. So the stuff that's highlighted in pink that's practical, that's something where it'll be like, Ari uses a six point checklist to decide whether or not his race car is ready to drive. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I'll highlight that in pink and I'll say, what is the six point checklist that you use to decide whether your car is ready to drive? And often the guests will be like, oh, I, I'm surprised you know that I have that. And I'll be like, yeah, it was in this random interview you did with 60 Minutes in 94. And they're like, oh, cool. Yeah, let me see if I remember that. And sometimes we have to like edit out a pause where they have to think for a while. Again, I don't want that happening in real time on the show because it's a waste of your time. I don't want people looking at their phone and making sure the show is still on because someone's trying to remember something. Um, so I ask very specific questions and if they say, oh yeah, I, I do this like six point thing where I make sure my car is ready to drive. I will pause and go, what are the six points? Oh, they're just six, uh, characteristics of my car tire condition that I want to make sure are intact. Okay. What are those? So you have to constantly hold their feet to the fire because not because guests don't know what they're going to say. I mean, sometimes maybe it's that. And, but usually it's because no journalist or interviewer is really doing that. So they don't ever really have to get to where the rubber meets the road. That's why you get these people who do interviews that are like, how to make money online. First, find a niche. Second, target your niche's other fans. And it's like, whoa, how do you find a niche? Oh, well, you think of something that you're passionate about. Well, how do I find that? What if I'm just sitting at home and I'm like, I have no passion in my life. Oh, well, then find it. Okay, well, how? And a lot of these like guru, instructor people, or even thought leader type people that have written books that are really smart, they've never actually thought about this crap. They're just, they're used to getting away with it. And I don't let them get away with it on the Jordan Harbinger show because then it's a waste of time. Like what if you're sitting here and you're like, I have no idea how to start a business from home. Oh, first you need a killer idea. Then you, oh, hold on. How did you iterate on your idea? 
And if they found it by accident, then I think like, okay, lucky you, but you should probably have a system in place. And if they claim to teach people how to do this, they better have a system in place. Otherwise I'm calling BS on their whole job, basically. Yeah, that's really, that's very helpful, I think. Um, <clears throat> Kayvon. Muted. Hi, Jordan. Good hey. to see you. Hey. Um, so you kind of, I typed up my question before you were talking about it before, so you kind of answered some of it. Okay. But I repeat my question. So let's say there is a podcast or an interview on a specific theme or, or topic. Let's say it's, I don't know, it's about uh, how to increase your profits. So it's not about business building or something. It's very specific. And they bring all these people from all different expertise. How do we keep them to always talk about what they're good at, but with the lens of what our focus is, as in how to increase profits, for example? Sure. So if I understand your question, it's how do you keep these experts talking from their expertise or their experience, but not maybe meandering off into some other area? I mean, <clears throat> a lot of a lot of people, what's that? Um, almost. Um, okay, how can do you clarify? I experts talking about uh, about what they're good at and always relating it to what the whole show is about. For example, if Ari's show is about productivity, lots of people can talk about what they're good at, but how to do that in a productive way would be a subsection of what they're good at. So asking them, how do you do, how do you stay productive in what you do? How do you stay productive in what you do? And, and on and on. So that productivity could be the theme. And at the same time, I don't want to lose their wisdom on what they're good at. So keeping it on theme basically. Huh, I'm not sure I totally understand that question. So I, I would- think, I think it's, it's kind of like the horse example you gave before, Jordan, about sort of like letting people meander or reining in. Yeah, that's what I'm, okay. So that's kind of what I clarified before, but I guess that wasn't totally it. So if that's the question, I can answer that again, but I, no, I mean- I you, you answered most of it. So okay. uh, I just came, you know, because as I said, I typed it before. Sure. Talk about that. So. Yeah, most of it was answered there, so I, I just thought maybe there's something else to add. I mean, if somebody starts going off on a random tangent that doesn't – I always look at every show that I do, every podcast, every interview on the Jordan Harbinger show through the lens of, like, what's good for the listener. So if I – because I have a law background. I used to be a lawyer. So I will be like, okay, what's in the best interest of my client, a.k.a. the person listening to this right now? So if somebody says something really interesting – that's interesting for me, but not for the listener. I might go down that path, but then edit it out. Or I might just make a note to ask at the end or just avoid it. Because I notice a lot of people who do podcasts are, or interviews at all are kind of selfish. Uh, less journalists, but more along the lines of podcasts. So it's like, I'll go to do a show and they'll do the entire show about like guest booking. And I'm like, your listeners don't care about this, you know? And, and, I'll touch on it. Fine. I, I, and this, this 
sort of mastermindy situation is a little different because you guys are all sort of in the, in the business niche. But if I'm doing a general show with like some YouTuber and he's asking me how to grow a podcast audience, for example, I'll spend a little bit of time on it, but there will be a minute in the middle where I'm like, Hey, is your audience going to be interested in this? Cause they're all like 17 year olds that like anime and we're supposed to be funny and joking around. And you're kind of like doing this self-serving, I won't say self-serving, but you're kind of doing this like self-serving, how do I grow my show tangent? And it's like, edging up on 20 minutes, you know, we're losing people and they'll be like, oh yeah, you might be right. And I'm like, you might want to edit that out. I'll help, happily help you grow your show. But I see a lot of podcasters using it as like consulting. And I'm like, hey, you know, your audience doesn't care. And that's why your audience isn't growing because you're using it as like, how do I grow my lead gen? And it's like, unless you're doing a show about business, it's not really useful, you know? And so I see a lot of people do that. And I think it, it, there's, Podcasts should be conversational, but it's remember it's not a conversation that you're having in your living room wh where random people just get to tune in. There's like a there's a major difference between that because now you're not just sort of chit chatting with somebody in a way that's self serving. You're you're the voice of the hundred thousand or so people who are tuned into what you're saying. So you have to actually ask questions they want to hear about. You can't just be sort of like let me just horse around and talk about cornflakes because that's funny for me and I'm killing time this morning doing my show. Shows like that don't last long unless it's like Bill Burr, you know, whose brand is, I'm just gonna do whatever I want because I'm a comedian. If you're not a comedian, then you probably are screwing it up if you're just talking about anything and everything. Like the whole, the whole two guys in a garage drinking beer talking about Boston sports is great if your whole audience is actually like Boston sports fans and you're gonna talk about Boston sports. It's not good if your audience is nationwide and you're only talking about sports 10% of the time and the rest of the time you're talking about how your wife yelled at you. Like that's, it's not good. And those people are like, I don't get why my show's not growing. I tweet it out all the time. It's like, you have no value for the listener. So I try to keep everything tight uh, when I do interviews on the Jordan Harbinger show because otherwise I'm wasting the listener's time. If you were in a lawyer's office and they were billing in six minute increments, how much would you have for lunch conversation would you be doing at that point? Not much when you're paying 400 bucks an hour. And I look at my audience's time as professionals using their time. You know, I, I, they're, they're billing me in six minute increments that if they're not interested after the first, if I lose them for six minutes, they've wasted time they could have used to do something else, make money, go to the gym, whatever, you know? So like that, I look at it that way. I don't, I don't do a whole lot of like rambly small talk. Yeah, thanks very much. That's very interesting and helpful. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. And as far as what you just said, you know, great interviews on point and you know, good for audience. Who are some of your favorite podcasters or podcasts? Um, I don't listen to a ton of podcasts because in large part, I think a lot of them are uh, not done well. That doesn't mean there's no good podcast, but I'm not, not interested in true crime most of the time. Um, and some of the ones where I am interested, like I listened to one, oh, well, you know what, if we're just talking about good interviewers, it's going to be kind of tricky because, because there are interviewers that are good for different reasons. So if I want somebody who's really good off the cuff at having great conversations, but has st stacked the deck in their favor by having awesome guests, you listen to Conan O'Brien needs a friend, for example, that podcast. It's great because the host is Conan O'Brien, but he's a massively talented comedian that's been, I don't know, in the national spotlight since the early 90s. That's, 
That's a guy with a lot of experience. I mean, he's like 30 plus years into his career. Um, and then he'll have a guest on that's like Howard Stern, who's really good at talking. So that is a good interview in a way, but not because the interviewer is particularly talented, or I should say not just because he's particularly talented, but he's got like the deck is stacked. You know, if you have a celebrity on that, that is famous for being fun and talking, like Jimmy Kimmel, you just have to not screw it up, you know, and you'll be fine. Um, but there are very few hosts where everybody they have on is great. And we know this because every interview show that we, you, you should be able to pull two dozen interviews out of any interviewer's stack and be like, these sucked because that's pretty normal. But when it's like 50-50 and the only time it's good is when they have someone famous on or when they have somebody who can really go, that's not necessarily a good interviewer. It's good guest booking. And it's, some, it's an interviewer that's like C plus, B minus. So I just want to jump in on one thing there. So my, my most popular episode ever on my podcast was with Jordan Belfort, mm. the Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I barely had to say anything. And it was like, it, it was like a wild ride. <laughs> um, yeah. And I don't think I'm like an amazing interviewer, but that one, like he, he just, it was like easy. I just didn't have, I just had to not screw it up. Yeah, yeah. I, I haven't had that guy on because I'm still getting over the fact that he's an actual criminal that victimized a ton of people. Yeah. It doesn't seem appealing to me. I'm actually, I would actually be curious because, um, you know, I have like a, maybe it's, maybe I'm overthinking this, but when I look at certain people, I'm like, what are your ethics and is your message good for my audience? And some of the time it's not. Like I look at a lot of these guys who do like get rich online investing in real estate or like come to my 11 x your business conference or something like that and i'm like this guy's just a scam artist you know like i don't want to expose my audience to this like i wouldn't bring my kids in the room with this guy so you know what the hell am i gonna do exposing my audience to this guy you have a a, a more focused niche audience maybe that are like relying on you for stuff so they're not going to be like ari endorses stock fraud or whatever the hell you right. know like they're going to know that but i think the difference maybe that I have, I have like kids listening. I have adults listening that are living in Indiana that are like anybody that Jordan has on seems like a pretty good guy. Although I, I think if you're open about being bad, that's an exception. Like I had Roger Stone on and, I, and people were like, how dare you? And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is a guy who openly admits that what he's doing is tricky, slimy. It, you won't be confused by that person. And he was still very polarizing. I still had people that are like, I haven't listened to you since you had Roger Stone on it because you're bad now. And I just, I think those people are kind of silly. Like you, they can only hear opinions they agree with. Um, and there, there is something where like if I have a serial killer on, I'm obviously not endorsing their actions. But there are some people that are sort of trying to pretend that they're on the up and up when they're really not at all. Like, I'm just trying to get people to learn how to build wealth from home. And it's like, no, you're not. You're trying to get people to buy your stupid crap. And then you're going to ghost them. Um, I don't know if that Jordan guy is in that camp, but I, that's what I'm sort of deciding, you know, on those people these days. Have you ever had a, a guest on that you were kind of starstruck by? Uh, let me think. Maybe, but I'm trying, I'm drawing a blank as to who that might actually be. Like, I, I, I have famous people on all the time. I, Kobe yeah. was good because he was so famous. I'm not even a basketball fan, but Kobe was great because he's like, really, he, he's just in, in, you know, there's A-list celebrities and then there are people that sort of like float. Does that make sense? Like they, 
and uh, not even because you admire them, but because they are, they have been famous forever. And they're not only massively talented, but everybody is looking at them for like all kinds of, they're elevated above the normal person in society. Like I interviewed Dennis Rodman and I was like, this is just a normal guy who's like on a downward sort of spiral uh, and has been. And I'll interview like Chelsea Handler, who's very relatable, normal, whatever. Um, but like with Kobe, you kind of walk in and like everybody knows where his office is in the whole complex. So they're like, oh, it's up there. It's up there. It's like knowing where the White House is in Washington, D.C. And then you get in there and there's somebody who's like, yes, just a few moments, sit here in this fancy lot. Like it's really, really sort of like, um, a, what do you call it? Like a, a curated experience, you might say. And like the dude doesn't, doesn't just walk in alone. Like he's got like his whole thing. And celebrities do this on purpose, but I think his was sort of more organic. You know, like people were following him to get his attention. Whereas if you interview somebody like T.I., who's a rapper, who is also on my show, he's got his entourage, but like they don't necessarily need to be there. Like he could do this stuff, stuff on his own. And I've hung out with him where there's two people around, but most of the time there's like nine or 11 people around. Um, so I would say not really, but like some environments make you more nervous than others or might be more starstruck starstruck uh inducing <laughs> that feeling will be induced more but star stricken i star stricken yeah but I, I don't really not really i mean sometimes you don't want to screw things up because you have a limited amount of time to correct the problem but i never my nerves during interviews don't come from like oh i hope this person likes me i think in fact that that's a good point i that leads to an interesting point here when my nerves kick up during an interview, it's because somebody was late and the video guy is panicking and I can't tell what's up. Or he said, hey, two of your cameras are broken today. Like they're updating the firmware and like if it won't turn on or like the power keeps going out and I'm like, are my batteries kicking in automatically? Like stuff like that will, will happen. But I'm not nervous because I, I'm trying to get someone to like me. And I, I realize this is a problem that I think a lot of journalists, or I should say podcasters mostly, they make. I see a lot of interviews where it's so clear the host just wants to become friends with the guest after. They're so concerned with becoming, being a part of their Instagram story. They're so interested in mining this person for their friends who are also famous that they don't get a good interview out of them. And it's, it's such a waste of everyone's time. And, and, and you can sort of imagine who this is, like any influencer who like sells a business mastermind show and like has an Instagram following, those people can't interview for shit because they are obsessed with becoming famous. So any celebrity, they won't ask them anything tough. Their, their comments aren't like, well, don't you think that's a little bit strange that you started that way? Or do you feel like that taints your history a little? They say things like, wow, inspiring, amazing. They don't say anything. They don't even need to be there. They're just trying to become, they didn't even think about the interview. They just went, oh, this person has 800,000 Instagram followers? Yeah, book them. And then two minutes before the interview, they're like, I heard that you are a comedian that went to Russia on a study abroad. Tell me about that. Like, they don't care. They're just trying to kill the time so they can put up a YouTube clip. And it's so obvious. You, you see that a lot. Yeah. Uh, and so that brings up a good question then for me too, which is uh, the podcast market is a very, very saturated market because yeah. anybody can start a podcast, you know, in the next 10 minutes. But it sounds like from what you're saying, and you're making me like, you're reminding me of a lot of scenarios that I've heard now where it seems like you really can differentiate yourself still with good content. Oh yeah. I mean, I'm not necessarily the particularly talented or funny interviewer, 
I just outwork everyone. That was my strategy in law school. I was in law school in Michigan with a bunch of smart people who seemed to effortlessly coast through everything. And I was like, if I work 16 hours a day, I'll graduate in the top half of the class for sure. Because there are people that like don't even show up to class. And when I see them, they're not like, I was studying in my room. They're like, yeah, I woke up at 11, went to the gym, moseyed on into lunch, uh, rolled up a J. I'm like, okay, cool. See, you know, you'll graduate, you'll get a job somewhere maybe, but you know, you're not gonna crush. And I was just like, I'll just make friends with all the smart kids and study for 16 plus hours a day, six, seven days a week, and I'm good. And that's exactly what I did. And I do the same thing with my show. Like, if you're, if you're Conan O'Brien, you can probably stroll into an interview with Howard Stern and be like, yeah, I know of, I know of Howard and I know what he does and we're going to have a fun time. And then you just start talking. And it's great, great. You got two massively experienced, talented people that are going to, and your audience is going to tune in because it's you and because it's them. I don't have that luxury, so I have to be like, hey, I'm not uh, Bill Burr, so this isn't going to be hilarious, but it's going to be the best interview you've heard with this person because I'm going to outwork everyone else. So it won't be the funniest interview you've heard with Chelsea Handler, but it'll be the best interview you've heard with Chelsea Handler. And the reason for that is I will pull out the best stuff that she has because I've outworked all these other schmoes who are just like, all right, today I get to stand next to Chelsea Handler for 17 photographs, which is like all those people really care about. So that's an, it's actually not that high of a bar because to outwork a journalist is really easy. They're super busy and they're overloaded. To outwork a podcaster is super easy because they don't understand the value of prep. So, but when I, when I look at other world-class interviewers that I think are really, really good, Howard Stern, I know people that work with him and he's, he works so hard. He outworks everyone because he's afraid to look bad, which is kind of part of his like pathology, but he's afraid to look bad. So he will work harder than everyone. And I'm like, I can do that. Not because I'm afraid to look bad, but because if I just show up and I'm like, I'm Jordan Harbinger, who gives a crap? No one's going to tune in for that. They're tuning in because I'm bringing it every time. I'm not wasting their time. That's great. Uh, Angel, you had a question. Yeah, so you say you keep things concise with your interviews. So when you're interviewing your guests, do you have a defined endpoint on when you're going to conclude the interview or do you just end wherever it makes intuitive sense? Uh, yeah, I have in my notes, it'll say like ending question. And it's usually something that is good, open-ended, not fluffy because a lot of, again, a lot of journalists are, or interviewers will do something like they'll go so what's next for you and i'm like and off because i don't care you know and your audience doesn't care that's just like a throwaway line that they've decided they got a signal from their producer that was like cut you know and they're just like okay so what's next for you it's an open-ended question that's future pointing what's next for you makes sense if somebody just got out of prison and they were there falsely accused for 20 years what's next for you but you don't even say what's next for you you say how do you how are you going to rebuild your life you know, you make it heavy and you want people to be like, wow, yeah, what, how are you going to do that? So I ask something that is meaningful at the end that is also forward thinking. You can tell when somebody goes, and we're out of time, what's next for you? Like, they'll just, they, the, the we're out of time, they don't have to say it. You can really tell. They'll say something like, um, what are you most excited about moving forward? And it's like, that's a garbage question. Who cares what they're excited about? I, I want to, my audience has specific things they're curious about. I really don't care what like, I mean, Chelsea Handler's a nice person, but what is she excited about? I could not care less truthfully. And I know that a hundred to 250,000 people who are tuning in, they don't really care. They want to know why this happened or why that happened or what's going to happen in the future with this specific thing. Not, not like what, what inspires you, who cares? They, the audience does not care. 
They don't care, and they shouldn't care. They, they're worried about themselves, and they should be. That's, that's who, they're always looking out for themselves. They always wanna build their own business. If something is useful for them, like how do you stay inspired when you don't feel like getting out of bed in the morning and you're struggling with depression? Like maybe that's useful, but what inspires you or what gets you out of bed every morning? Who gives a crap? Nobody cares, only that person. And they're gonna make up the answer. They're not gonna be like, I'm so glad you asked. I have this thing that gets me out of bed every morning. I can't wait to share it. They're gonna be like, uh, just being the best I can be always. Bye. Show that's, up. That's, show up. Yeah, yeah. Oh, sh uh, you can miss 100% of the shots you don't take. See you guys later. Like, that's what they're going to say. They're not going to say anything useful. So if you are asking a question and you know you're not going to get a useful answer, just ditch the question. So I come up with an ending question. Usually I think it's going to yield something fruitful. And if it doesn't, it gets cut because it's a waste. Of, again, it's a waste of everyone's time. So I want to change topics for a second here because one of the things that's that's uh, really impressive about what you've created here is that you've basically done it twice because yeah. you essentially had to start over with the Jordan Harbinger show. So you had an incredible show with the Art of Charm, started over, and now you have an incredible show with the Jordan Harbinger show. So clearly not an accident. Right. But can you, can you speak to a little bit about what that was like starting over and uh, getting back to where you are now? Yeah, it was really stressful. So I started a company and I, I, I want to be a little careful because I, we've signed a settlement agreement and I got everything that I wanted from them pretty much. And they're like super emotional about it uh, all the time. And I, I'll leave it at that. But you can kind of imagine where if you've split with, I split with them and it was not amicable. You know, I, I couldn't wait to get away from the company for various reasons but there was a lot of, if you leave, I'm going to screw up your life kind of BS going on. And I was like, all right, well, that's not good because, you know, you lose your income overnight, you lose your, you know, something you've built for 11 years and you get locked out of stuff while you're negotiating an amicable split. And you're just like, okay, well, these people are not like, this is not going to be a good result. I have to be, because usually when I talk about, it, I don't name the past company so I can be a little more forthcoming, but since since we know where I came from um, now, I have to be a little bit more wary of that. I knew that this wasn't going to work out well and was going to be ugly. So the first thing I did was start start from scratch, not hold out any hope that, that I was going to be dealing with sort of like a reasonable good faith actors. And that's always a good way to begin a any kind of split that you think is going to be nasty. Like don't don't give the other side credit for being good people because you might be wrong. And so in, in my situation, I was just like, who do I call for advice? And I, I made a list of about a hundred people, yourself included. And I called and was like, here's what happened. What would you do if you were me? And not only did I got a lot, get a lot of help from my friends, like people sharing stuff or giving me little bits of advice. I had people that were, had gone through this kind of exact same thing in a different industry, for example. And they were like, oh, when this happened to me, the number one thing was this. So I had a lot of make sure you do this, make sure you don't do that advice. And I followed most of it and it worked out really, really well. So one thing specifically was uh, Norm Pattis from podcast one said, don't count on anybody to be a good faith actor when there's money on the table. Just start your own business now. We'll help you launch it. Launch your new show, the Jordan Harbinger show, and just get to work. Don't don't sit around and waste time with these people. I'll and he even said, I'll I'll file a lawsuit and slow them down if they come after you, but just start over because by the time you get your old show back, if that's what's gonna happen, it will be ruined by people who don't know what they're doing. And so that was, that's exactly what happened. Um, I started the Jordan Harbinger show. Um, Norm and podcast one helped me launch it. 
Art of Charm filed a lawsuit uh, against uh, me, and I was like, what the hell? And of course, you don't want someone to compete with you. You want them to go away and, and work at Walmart or something. You know, like, you don't want the person who generated all the leads and all the revenue for the business to just, like, do something that possibly competes. So they were like, violation of non-compete. And I was like, y'all fired me, so eat a bag. And they were like, oh, well, we're going to go to court. And I was like, cool. In the meantime, I'm just going to build a business and make money. And as, as other revenue streams went down for, uh, my, for other companies that I'd worked for in the past, no names specifically, uh, but as those revenue streams went down because they'd hit hard times, my revenue streams were going up. And then also I had people like Podcast One and Norm uh, counter sue them. And so they were just like, oh, Jordan's got like backup. This is not what we had expected. So it was like immediate settlement negotiations and it dragged on for a while but it didn't matter to me because i was like i'm building i'm not waiting for you knuckleheads you know like i'm going and so that that turned out to be the best thing it, ironically it turned out to be the best thing that ever happened to me because if we had negotiated an amicable split as we had planned i'd probably still be doing business with people that i shouldn't be in business with but since everything came crashing down around me i was forced to just like run with it and i already had momentum you know, I, I took the team with me. I took my staff with me. I took the majority of the advertisers with me. I didn't even have to do anything. They were just like, well, we're going to follow you to your new thing. But if, if you lose momentum, you can be in trouble because then advertisers are like, oh yeah, that guy, I think I remember that guy. Wasn't he like a few years ago with this other thing? Oh, they're doing their thing again. You don't want that. You want it to be like, oh, well, that was sudden. All right, well, we'll just send the check we had written, scratch off that check and write another one and send it to this other place instead. Like, that's what you want. And that's exactly what happened. And so I ended up being free of any sort of responsibility to my old company and my old partners, really, other than just like not, uh, not trying to do, you know, the other, the usual legal obligations. Don't, don't try and screw up our entire business. Okay, cool. I'm minding my own. And that was, it was really tough, but making those calls, getting that advice, having the initial like hundred people help me launch my new show and also hearing about their experiences, like a lot of people told me just get a release from these guys like a general release where they say where they can't come after you later because if they screw things up later and you make a bunch of money they're going to figure out a reason to sue you so just get away from them as fast as possible like they might not realize their sh their shit is on fire if it is and i'm like that's a good point so i just got that and now i'm like thank god because if imagine when you leave stuff doesn't work out you could even things you don't know or control. Like, what if you get a tax audit? Well, you signed a release, I'm out. What if they get sued by somebody else? Not my problem anymore. You know, like, what if there's a labor complaint? That's all your problem now. Like, you want that. You don't want to be like, I'm getting this intellectual property. I get a license and copywritten. What, like, who cares? If you, in my situation, I'd made all of the content myself with my team. And I took my team with me when I left. So what do I need? nothing. A license to use that old stuff, maybe, if that comes later, which it did, great, cool. I'm good. I'm set. I'm, I, can, I, made, I make 155 episodes a year and I write. I don't need anything. And I realized that was the reason we weren't getting along in the first place. If I'm doing all the freaking work, I don't need the, the other stuff, the old stuff. So I took it as an opportunity to rebrand as well. And that was actually really helpful because if you think about it, using a brand that used to be for dating, that was really damaging. And I'd wanted to change that for a long time. And then I was basically forced to overnight. It was awesome.
like how long how long did it take to sort of with the new podcast to, i i don't know how to better describe this but like escape velocity you know in terms of people subscribing like how long did it take to get like critical mass it took a few months because people were like oh I was listening to your old show and I was a couple months behind and then, I, and I get this email to this day. Hey, Jordan. Oh my God. I can't believe it. I was, I guess, two years behind on your old show. I uh, was listening to the episodes out of order. I was going backwards because I'd been caught up and I decided to finish that. And then I decided to listen to new stuff and oh my God, you're gone. What the hell? And so they're like, I Googled immediately and found you had your new show. I can't believe I have 300 episodes to listen to. I'm so excited. I'm glad to be back. And I'm like, Cool. So the first few months where people just kind of catching up, there was several thousand people that were like, what happened? Uh, new shows don't have Jordan. And so they were finding me right away, but it was like this really interesting sort of smooth curve, but you can't make money when you have 10,000 subscribers. I mean, you're not making real money to pay your team. Not when you have 20, not when you have 30. So like I watched it slowly creep up from like 50 to a hundred thousand and beyond. And I was really worried because it took me 11 years to get the old show to where it was. So I thought it's going to take me at least five to bring the new show to where it should be. And it didn't, it took like one year and a half, maybe not even a whole year, maybe a year and a half, depending on what metrics you're using. But like we were more profitable. The Jordan Harbinger show was more profitable than my old company within the first year. I had more money in the bank for my company than the old company ever had on its books at any time. Yeah. Yeah which is incredible. I mean, that really yeah. speaks to, I mean, that's, again, that speaks to the quality of the work that you do and the followership that that brings. Thanks. Yeah. I think it surprised even me. You know, I, I, when I teach networking and stuff, I always say, dig the well before you're thirsty. And everyone's like, cool. But I was never like, one day I'm going to be really thirsty. It's like, it was more like, Ooh, good thing I practiced what I was preaching back then because if you don't dig the well before you, nobody who's digging the well before they get thirsty or building relationships before they need them. Nobody's like, one day I might be totally screwed and need these. They're just thinking like, oh, it's good advice generally, which it is. Or like, I might need this for some small opportunity that I don't know in the future. You never think, oh, what if my life crumbles, <laughs> right? Like, what if everything around me starts falling apart? It wasn't my whole life though. I, I had my wife and my friends. Like I didn't, I didn't lose anything in retrospect. I actually just like ditched dead weight and baggage, which was awesome. But at the time you think like the house that you just built with your own hands has just been taken from you when really you've just escaped a burning building like there's a big difference and you don't really see it until you get far enough away so what are you most excited about next <laughs> just yeah right i was like you dick <laughs> uh, so, all right well we got time for one more question does anybody else have any uh, other questions they want to ask uh, otherwise i'll i'll go jordan when when uh, we're meeting someone for the first time and we only have like let's say 15 minutes before the meeting to research the person what do you recommend doing? Well, it depends whether they're a public figure or not. If they're not a public figure, I would say, look at their LinkedIn, you'll get an idea for their current work, but of course also their past work. And you'll see like, oh, they went to Duke. So they lived in, I don't know, wherever that is, Chapel Hill or something like that. Well, right? like so, so like, you'll know something about that area or not, or it'll be like, oh, this person went to high school in another country. That's kind of interesting. So they must know something about that country. Maybe it's a boarding school. Maybe they're actually from there and we don't know. So you'll get that. If you just look at their Facebook, you'll be like, they recently went on vacation to Bermuda. Okay, not a whole lot to talk about there. I mean, there's some, and I would do it second, you know, if you could find out where they've been, what they've been doing. But LinkedIn's gonna be much better. If they're a public figure, I would say, look at their Wikipedia and then look at their Wikipedia talk page. The talk page is where people are like, 
oh, this guy, oh, I think he's such a scammer because look at this thing. And then you'd be like, oh, well, no, he's really great. Look at this charity work that they're doing. And it's like, none of it makes the Wikipedia article, but it's all like kind of discussed in the background. And you can get some good gems in there. If they've written a book, look at the positive reviews on Amazon or the top most helpful positive review, but most mostly look at the top negative review because the most helpful negative review isn't going to be the one where it's like, corners were damaged, wouldn't give refund. Like you see those. But you need to, you need the one where it's like, hi, I'm also a molecular biologist. There are 10 things wrong with this book. Here are the top three. And then it's like, oh, well, that's interesting. Now, when I'm talking with this person, I can say, you know, some people who read your book have said that you cherry pick your results. Like, I wouldn't lead with that. They might be like, you know, that's funny. Those people who say that, they don't know what they're talking about. Uh, they haven't really worked on this as long as I have. You know, I worked at the National Institute of Health and blah, blah, blah. So you can get some really good gems for that. So I would say LinkedIn is your best bet for a non-public figure. And then like a Wikipedia talk page is the best for a Wikipedia article followed by the talk page is going to be best for a public figure. Most public figures LinkedIn is like, here's the resume I used in 2005 before I did what I'm doing now. And I don't need LinkedIn. So they never update it. It's very helpful. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Jordan, thank you so thank much you. for the time. I appreciate it. I know you're not feeling well. So thank yeah. you again. Um, I think everybody enjoyed that. I know I did. Well, I'm glad to hear it, man. Yeah, this is a lot of fun. I'm glad I got the opportunity to do it. And yeah, I'm a little under the weather and stuffed up, but you know, that makes breaks. Okay, well, have a great day. Thank you, you too. Thanks, guys. See ya. So what happens next, you may be asking. Well, whenever you're ready, here are four ways I can help you grow your business and get back your time. One, join our free Facebook group, The Replaceable Founder. The second is to get our free Replaceable Founder mini course. The third one is to come to our next one day Replaceable Founder workshop in New York City. And lastly, you could apply to my Less Doing Leaders program. Simply send an email to oao at lessdoing.com and through the magic of automation and some very soon beings, we'll get you going in the right lane on the road to replaceability. Mm -hmm.